You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. She's wished her husband dead before. Isn't that what all wives wish occasionally about their husbands? A spin out on a country highway, an aneurysm at the gym, a bit of ham clogged in a windpipe. Something quick, something that allowed you a fresh start. It was a wish you made without believing it would actually come true. He had that frat boy charm, but underneath it was something rank, a surface different than his center. Maybe that was the case with everybody. It was definitely the case with Northfall. Take one look and you think you're in a piney postcard advertising vacation land. Blink a few times and you realize you're in the middle of an alien or geopolitical crisis. Benjamin Percy is the author of The Wilding, Red Moon, The Deadlands, The Dark Net. He's also working on The Comet Cycle. The Ninth Metal is the first novel coming out soon. Is The Unfamiliar Garden. He also writes for Wolverine and X-Force Marvel Comics. Thank you for joining me, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me on. Excited to be here. This is... Books in the comic cycle are such a delight, and I think they are an exemplary example of the American Gothic, and it's live and it's well, and I think using that form, the, the Gothic form, with the imagination infusion that it asks for, allows you to speak directly to things that we don't want to talk about, and that's what makes these books so exciting. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, it's, I have a shadow-soaked way of seeing the world, certainly. Um, and and I think that when it comes to speculative fiction, it's always interesting and resonant when it channels unease that we're experiencing as a culture, right? You can look back to Frankenstein and see a version of that. Frankenstein is born out of the Industrial Revolution, the fear of science and technology, the fear of man playing God. You can look at Godzilla and its connection to post-atomic anxieties. You can look at Invasion of the Body Snatchers and its connection to McCarthyism and the Red Scare. And in that same way, right, I'm trying to sort of channel worrisome elements of the moment. And you say that I'm talking about certain things that people don't want to talk about. Um but I'm doing it through a, a, a broken mirror, a fractured lens, right? Because it's one thing if somebody encounters the editorial page in a newspaper and some hot <laughs> issue is presented to them, which they probably already have an opinion about, and it either becomes something that people turn their face away from or they turn their face toward it because they already agree and it's just a preaching the, with the choir sort of deal. I instead, through story, I'm trying to like, you know, have a conversation about, um, you know, let's say in the ninth metal, 
of, you know, the, the rapacious treatment of the earth and, and the weaponization of resources. Um, or if you look at The Unfamiliar Garden, which is the book that's about to release, right, that, that book is all about contagion. Um, it's not about COVID. It's actually about alien fungus, but, but it's about contagion, right? Uh, and the infection, an infection that, 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 that rides the air like an invisible enemy and creates fissures in families and neighborhoods and cities and the country as a whole, potentially. Um, and, and, and as a result of that, you know, when you talk about me writing about things while not writing about them, I guess I'm following that age old advice from Emily Dickinson, which is to tell it slant. In other words, here I am writing about one thing while writing about something else entirely. You know, one of the things, too, that I think these books do so well that the American Gothic can currently do really well is look at regular people confronted with, and by bringing in the imaginary events, the, 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 your, the, the work of your imagination, you can look at those regular people and really unpeel them and see what makes them tick because it's not all just... Um, going to work and coming home and there's a lot more that goes on in the psyche and I think that's one of the things I really like about this is to these are these kind of books are one of the few places where you can read about people who are not rich famous super extra whatever (laughs) they're just kind of like normal joes only you know there are giant mushrooms growing in their garden (laughs) uh well you know when it comes to that trend you're talking about. I've noticed it, right? I noticed that here's another show about millionaires uh, or about people who are extra, as you put it. And I, you know, I, I grew up in the middle of nowhere and I live in the middle of nowhere now. Um, you know, my one of my neighbors is a mechanic and another one's a horse vet. I grew up next to loggers and ranchers. I, I married into a, a dairy farm family. Uh, I, I'm... I'm writing, you know, that age-old maxim, what I know. Uh, I don't know what it means to live in a penthouse <laughs> uh, <laughs> off Central Park. Um, but I do know, you know, a little bit about what it means to be, say, a, a, a taxidermist or a, or a cop or somebody who mucks out horse stalls and men's barbed wire fences for a living because, you know, these are people that I encounter or on a regular basis, or I'm related to. So yeah, I'm trying to sort of, I think it's it's always most compelling for me, especially in this age where it's not just the elite that find themselves oftentimes represented in film, TV, novels, whatever, but it's, but it's you know, the, 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 the super powered, right? Right. See yeah. much, whether it's the rock, like, seizing a torpedo and spinning it around during a car chase on an ice shelf, uh, which was Fast and the Furious, I don't know, 17 or whatever, <laughs> whatever installment of the franchise that was. Or if it's Captain America, you know, uh, leaping across some void while dodging bullets and, and uh, you know, performing a gymnastic routine like that. You know, I, I'm more interested in not just the way that ordinary people encounter extraordinary circumstances uh but 
but also trying to, you know, uh, so tr trying to trying to create something that 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 is relatable, not necessarily aspirational, which is so much of what we encounter in the media these days, but relatable, relatable trauma, relatable circumstances, so that my reader can hopefully feel as though they are safely encountering, experiencing, processing something that they might that might not be that different from what they encounter in the headlines, right? So yes, I'm dealing with, you know, in a way an alien incursion. And we can talk a little bit more about the specifics of that. But but it, it it's really no different than what's going on really with like infectious disease in the world right now or with what's going on you know, if you're talking about the Ninth Medal, the first book, with the debate that's currently rain, uh, raging in the Iron Range of Minnesota about whether or not we should protect some of these wild areas or mine uh, the iron ore and copper nickel that resides there. Um, so, yeah. But when it comes to, like, relatable traumas, I said before, like everyday experiences, you know, I think, I think that there's something to be said about, like, writing something that is personal to you that is raw to you i think that that carries over to the audience and since i write a lot of horror and i don't know if you can qualify the unfamiliar garden as horror it's sci-fi it's a thriller it's a mystery it's it's got elements of horror here and there you call it american gothic you know but since i write a lot of horror people are often asking me what scares me and my jokey response is usually like oh clowns or sharks or dentists or something like that. But in, in fact, there's only one thing that I'm actually terrified of, and that is something happening to my kids. Um, and, and again, stories always infect readers most when there's something personal the author's drawing from. And, and my kids, they're 12 and 15 now, but when they were little, when they were infants and toddlers, we had a few really scary scrapes with death where they had horrible issues with croup every winter and their air passages weren't developed enough and, and they were in and out of the hospital. One of the most horrifying moments of my life was uh, I was in the middle of a blizzard and an ambulance had to pick my son up and his lips were turning blue because he couldn't breathe and he was shipped off and I was trying, you know, to, to travel right behind the ambulance and thinking about what was going on inside of it. And it was just, uh, you know, that's a, that's a deep wound for me. And, 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 in a way, that's what the unfamiliar garden is about. It's about, you know, trauma to a family. It's about a lost child. It's about the possibility of reunion uh, when you think, you know, everything is is lost. Everything is hopeless. Uh, you know, that, that maybe there might be a brighter tomorrow ahead of you. And and so, anyways, you know, when it, when it comes to what you're talking about, the everyday Joe, and also just everyday experiences, everyday traumas. Everyday relatability. That's I'm, I. I appreciate you saying that, and I, I hope it carries across on the page to others. That's what I think makes the book so um, exciting and, and fun. I think that that these books should and could re reach a, a very wide audience. You know, um, one of the things that struck me right at the beginning was the premise of of these three books, yeah. which is. Uh, I mean, I think super brilliant. I've never seen the closest I've, that anybody has come to that idea, I think, is uh, the Strugatsky brothers with Roadside Picnic, 
which yeah. was adapted into a movie called uh, Stalker by yeah. Tarkovsky. But so tell, explain your idea of what happens with this comet. It doesn't hit the Earth, does it? No, no, no. So the comet is the inciting incident for all these stories. Uh, it's an age-old sci-fi trigger. A comet comes streaking through the solar system. The planet spins through the debris field, and we're introduced to new elements. Um, and they upend the laws of, of geology, biology, physics, and they create chaos on the geopolitical stage, and they upend the weapons and en energy industry, and they, in a very Marvel sort of way, create a new dawn of heroes and villains. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> essentially, it's just like, create a new world within this world. Mm -hmm. And every one of these books takes place at the same time. You know, one of the issues with sequels is that there is attrition, a natural attrition that occurs. Second book sells fewer copies than the first, third sells fewer copies than the second, and so on. So these books are all standalone. You can read them in any particular order. You can read the second book before you read the first book, and so on. And there could be three books. That's the initial contract. There could be six, there could be 12, there could be 20. You know, I can keep building what I'm referring to as a shared universe. Um, and, you know, when I'm looking at other models for inspiration here, like look at how Lois Lowry cousined her books together. The Giver, The Messenger, Sun, Gathering Blue. They're not so much a quartet as they are a family. Mm -hmm. Or look at how Kate Atkinson wrote A Companion to Life After Life with The God in Ruins. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, you know, none of these books are dependent on the other, but they build upon the same narrative fra uh, fabric. Uh, you know, when you were talking, one of the things I really enjoyed about the, the Ninth Metal is even within that book, you do a kind of Rashomon kind of thing where we see the same events from completely different perspectives. And when we do, it's so such a one of those great reading pleasures you just go oh my god and, and, and so talk about uh, building that into you know the first standalone novel which is really fun oh thank you yeah it's, you know it's an ensemble piece mm -hmm. uh, the ninth medal and here's what i want to do i mean i i i look at northern minnesota for starters and it's become one of my favorite corners of the country. I grew up in the Northwest, but I live in the Midwest now. And, and Northern Minnesota interested me for a few different reasons. One, it's a liminal space. What I mean is that in the borderlands of Northern Minnesota, you're never sure, are you in the US or in Canada? Is this private land? Is this corporate land? Is this tribal land? There are lots of questions. Questions that lead to uh, all-out brawls up there, uh, and personal, cultural, political, economic brawls. And, and the economics of it and, and the environmental debate about it stems, too, from the fact that northern Minnesota used to be the steel capital of the world. Uh, all the iron ore was coming out of there to different refineries. And like so many regions in the Midwest, it's experienced economic decline. So this once 
supremely powerful and rich area now relies almost exclusively exclusively on tourism for money. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, lawsuits, town meetings, legislation surrounding do we protect these wild areas or do we tap into the copper nickel, especially that's that's available there. Now, in writing about this, I take a speculative approach, right? We have this alien ore. It's called omnimetal. And omnimetal, right, is very marvelly in that it's a metal that can absorb energy on a quantum level, which means it has a lot of potential as an energy resource, but also as a weapon. And so the middle of nowhere becomes the center of everything. And I wanted to create sort of like a Deadwood 2.0. <laughs> so in writing that, I wanted to have all these variant perspectives, right? Here is the person who has lived there th their whole life and is a witness now to cataclysmic change. And here are the people who have moved there just to get blue collar work, the equivalent of roughnecks on an oil field. Uh, you know, everybody recently has um, charged up to North Dakota to take advantage of the oil boom there, right? Thousands mm -hmm. and thousands of people. And in a way, I kind of transposed that situation onto northern Minnesota in that there are all these people who want to drive truck. There are all these people who want to, you know, work in the mines. Uh, and, and man camps are springing up. That's what they're called in North Dakota, man camps, because there are trailer parks and trailer parks and trailer parks that are that are set up and there's 14 dudes bunking in a single one of them because there's no place to live. There's no infrastructure for all these people. And, and following that is crime, right? There's, there's prostitution, there's uh, drugs. I'm talking about North Dakota, but I'm also talking about the ninth metal because mm. I'm using similar circumstances. And, and so I want to show also, I want to show the, the lawbreakers. I want to show the law enforcers. I want to show the people who are, on the side of the government and trying to essentially race the rest of the world to figure out how to optimize this situation to their advantage. And I want to show people who have been disadvantaged by it or even victimized by the situation. So there's this kaleidoscopic element to it all, prismatic element to it all. And if you look at shows like Deadwood, there's something very similar going on there, right? Where you're, mm -hmm. you're, Jump, leaping from point of view to point of view to give a more holistic picture of a really interesting, complicated place. You know, um, in the, the Unfamiliar Garden, it's, I think, one of the few things I've read or you've seen on TV that I think you really handle COVID well in that. Oh, thanks. COVID has been the bane of fiction. <laughs> Yeah. And, and television and storytelling in general because it puts a, a big, you know, it literally puts a mask between the storyteller and, and, and the listener. So uh, I talk about using the uh, science fiction aspect to explore COVID and, and how it's changed our world. Then. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's... It's the invisible enemy mm. referred to it before, you know, it, it, it rides the air. It's, it makes you suspicious of others. It makes you withdraw. It makes you not trust your own body. 
And I saw in that a kind of invasion of the body snatchers potential in that you can become an unwilling host, right? Or, or, or maybe the person you love the most is suddenly dangerous to you. Um, and so I'm acknowledging COVID. I mean, there's at one point in the novel or two points in the novel where people talk about COVID or, or when people start to mask up again because of this fungal infection, some people get really mad because they don't want to be reminded of what it was like in pandemic times. So it takes place in, you know, just a very near future. And I didn't want to make the pandemic central to the novel because we're, right, uh, living in the midst of it and we need a little bit of distance. I just wanted something that felt felt sort of akin to it, that felt mm. cousin to it. Um, and yeah, you know, the, the novel is... At its core, it's about family. It's about a broken family. I, I think that the characters you create in all these novels, your story, are really, really interesting. Um, and, and again, they have the, the feel and the texture of, of real people, somebody you might know next door. So talk about creating these characters who are somewhat super average folks even um john from the ninth, ninth metal is you know he 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 may be the son of rich people but he's still kind of like an average kind of guy that you might know uh, talk about that creating realistic average people and then literally <laughs> in the unfamiliar garden infecting them with the unreal yeah you know i always write character first uh, meaning uh, i might have this crazy premise this high concept idea whether it's post-apocalyptic reimagining of the lewis and clark saga that's my novel <laughs> the deadlands right or uh you know hell is trying to portal its way through into the earth via the internet and that's my novel, The Dark Web. You know, I might have these crazy high concept ideas, but it's always character first. And and to illustrate that, let me just tell you a little bit about my, my process and that I have to my left over here a closet in my office. And that closet was used by the former owner of this house as a dark room. He was a hobby photographer. And it's appropriate that in the dark room, I have my... Nightmare factory, I guess you could say. <laughs> uh, this is where I brainstorm. I have tacked up on the wall clusters of articles on certain research subjects. Or I have character ideas. Uh, or action set piece ideas. Or I even have a piece of paper that just says scares on it. It's different ideas for scary scenes. Uh, but I also have up on the wall these scrolls of paper. And if you look over my shoulder, you can see that, like, the dark room is full, and there's a, you know, like a, a scroll even out in the main office. <laughs> yeah, it's creeping out where, like, uh, the mu the mushroom spores. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Fungal spores are spreading. Um, so on these scrolls, what I do is on the left-hand side, I have a character chart. And I will write out these Wikipedia entries, essentially, on the characters, like biographies of who they are. I sometimes even draw little cartoons of them. And once I figure out who they are, 
I figure out what they want. And once I figure out what they want, I can put obstacles in the way of that desire, like a cruel god. And that's when I start to put these strands across the scroll, strands that grow out of, I'm using more like uh, fungal descriptions here, like filaments that's, <laughs> that start to grow across the scroll. Um, and what I'm doing there is, you know, these are the first stirrings of plot where I'm like, okay, this character is going to encounter this obstacle or this obstacle. And then they're going to have a reversal here where everything they were planned, that they planned, uh, you know, went to shit. And they have to find a new way of moving forward. Or here's their rock bottom moment or whatever. It's not that I'm figuring out every single moment in their story, but I'm figuring out the brightest stars in the constellation, let's say. And 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 then as I write, I kind of fill in the gaps in between. Um, and so, you know, I really feel that, like, it doesn't matter how nightmarish your vampire train is or how gross your squid aliens are or how amazing your time travel theory is or whatever. If there's not a human heart beating at the center of your story, nobody's going to care. And so that's what is principally important to me is like, who are these characters? Why should my audience care about them? And and it's not just that, it's that they will accept uh, whatever hallucinatory, mad hatter uh, stuff that's going on along the periphery of the narrative, as long as they believe in the point of view, right? You make people believe in this person, then what's happening outside of them, they'll believe in as well, because you have an emotional anchor. You know, in one of the things that I like about the Unfamiliar Garden is that it is an alien invasion story, but unlike every other one where they come to Earth and fly in saucers, which seems completely insane, if you've got enough technology to get from one star to the other, there's nothing the other star could offer you that you couldn't figure out yourself better. This kind of invasion seems very realistic, and I think it, it it's... Um, I, I'm... It gives the different stories you tell like a real tension because we want to find out where, if there's, you know, a centrifying, unifying intelligence behind all this or, or what's going on. So talk about that kind of uh, to take the intelligence out of the alien invasion but make it more exciting. Well, there's... Th thanks. And there's a, there's a scientific underpinning to so much of what I do. You know, if, if I'm writing about werewolves, as I did in the novel Red Moon, you know, I sat down with researchers from Iowa State University who specialized in animal-born pathogens. I sat down with people who worked at the USDA labs. And I, <clears throat> you know, bought them meals, bought them coffee, bought them beer filled up yellow legal tablets packed with notes because I wanted to create a real-world analog to the werewolf myth. I wanted it to be something like mad cow disease or chronic wasting disease, these misfolded prions that uh, leap out of the animal population and infect their human hosts. And so, you know, I was able to sort of authenticate the supernatural in that way. 
And the same thing has gone for the ninth medal, and the same thing has gone for the unfamiliar garden. With the ninth medal, I sat down with a physicist who works at Carleton College. Uh, he's a buddy of mine. And I, you know, plied him with scotch and uh, told him to share all his dark secrets with me. And as I, as I conjured up this, you know, uh, this metal that could potentially absorb kinetic energy. Um, and, and with the unfamiliar garden, you know, I sat down with an, a biology professor and I sat down with researchers who work at the Wolf Ridge Environmental Center in Northern Minnesota and, um, filled up more and more pages of notes here. Right. And, and when it comes to fungus, like most people think that blue whales are the largest organism on earth and they're wrong. It's fungus. Um, <laughs> A pathogenic, pathogenic fungus takes up an estimated 3,000 acres in eastern Oregon, in the Blue Mountains. And it's estimated to be over 8,000 years old, which is nuts. Uh, and the Pacific Northwest is his garden. And, and, and botanists have tried to find the edge of this fungus, and they can't. There, there is no edge. It's ever-expanding. Um and, and on the surface, you have these yellow cap mushrooms that pop up. But beneath the soil, there's these rhizomorphs that are just slowly fingering their way outward and creating like a mat underneath the ground. Um, these filaments, they just weave tighter and tighter together uh, as they spread. And, and they, it, it secretes these digestive enzymes that, that, that kill conifers, that kill forests. Mm. And into this place and i've seen this mushroom i've stood over it um and my mom is you know she's a trained botanist she worked for the forest service for a time so i grew up learning about this kind of stuff and and i was just thinking about standing over a kind of like this this monster in a way this monster that was killing off tree after tree after tree and, and there's that and there's also you know i was once one time in hiking in a forest and this was actually in the Olympic Peninsula, which is where uh, this particular story takes place. And as is often the case, it was very cloudy, very foggy, and there were mushrooms everywhere. But the thing is that because of the mist, when I was looking at this one giant capped mushroom, it looked to me like a UFO floating through clouds. Like some of those, you know, those moments of cinematography like you see in Independence Day, where the, you know, the vast... Uh, you know, mushroom cap of a ship comes floating forward through the sky and makes itself visible. And I was just thinking about that. Like, what if the, what is the, what if they're already here? Um, because I've read articles as well about how fungus is, bears more resemblance to humans, to animals than it does any plant. Um, and how some scientists believe that they, that, that fungus comes from outer space, that fungi comes from outer space. Um, and, and so, you know, I have in the novel like this otherworldly fungal organism that comes from the comet's debris, and it and it uses people as an adaptive vessel. Um, there are no alien a, aliens, in other words. There is an alien, singular. Uh, the mycelium, the the fungus that's that's spreading among us, and it's created this this united intelligence. Uh, you know, it's a, it, it really is a situation that reads like some version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. 
you know, um, one of the things that struck me about this was uh, in, in each book you kind of take a, a slightly different kind of slant in in the the in the ninth metal it it's i have to admit i read the whole book and then when i read the the thank yous i realized oh my god that's right this is really kind of a comic book kind of thing whereas in in the the unfamiliar garden you're really in lovecraft territory especially with some of the kind of the uh the fungal effects and the, uh, they're not exactly monsters but they're more horrifying than monsters because they grow inside of you <laughs> so so talk about you know choosing the, the different uh you know i guess shades of genre that you, I mean, it sounds that it's like you are, are just setting yourself up for a ton of fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wanted every book to have its own tonal frequency, I guess you could say. And and you're absolutely right about some of the Lovecraftian elements present in the, the second book. They're hinted at in the first book as well, though. Mm-hmm. And come to realize that, you know, maybe there's a reason why this these these elements that come from beyond. Maybe there's a reason why they aren't on the periodic table already, which is the case for any comet that comes from the Oort cloud or beyond, right? Mm-hmm. There's only so much existing matter, so many existing elements in this universe that all launched with the Big Bang. And and so if it comes from without, maybe that means that, you know, the origin is not not space, but another dimension. Um, and some of those questions will be answered in the third book. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I wanted the first book to sort of be more of a crime book in a way. It's science mm-hmm. fiction. It's more of a crime novel. Right. Yeah, it is. Exactly. It has the feel of a kind of a, uh, in a sense, uh, a Jack Reacher book. Yeah. But, <laughs> but with... Uh, it's a little more Lovecraftian. and Yeah. But, you know, I'm trying to vary the books in other ways as well. Like the first book is very much an ensemble. The second book is very much a two-hander, I mm-hmm. guess you could say. Um, and I wanted it to be thematically tied in to the, story, to the story itself, which, you know, is about symbiosis. So you have a husband and you have a wife who have been driven apart by the loss of their child. But over the course of the novel, it goes from being he said, she said, in a way that is akin to uh, shows like The Affair, or movies, books like Gone Girl, or Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff. He said, she said, it goes back and forth in a Rashomon kind of way, just between two perspectives. But by the end, I wanted that symbiosis to occur, and again, tying into the fungus, right? And there's a unification of perspectives. and it becomes actually a they towards the end. The point of view changes to a they, a collective uh, pronoun. And, 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 and so I'm, you know, each novel is trying to do very much its own thing with the same trigger. The, the debris falls, life is upended. Um, but you know, when it comes to like the marvel of it all, the comic book stuff of it all, um, I've been writing for DC or Marvel since 2014 right now i write wolverine 
for Marvel. And that is a childhood dream come true, I'll admit. Um, but these characters don't belong to me. Right? Mm. As much love and attention that I give them, or as much success as I might have, I am a custodian. Mm. And at the end of the day, I need to, you know, build my own sandbox. Uh, you know, that should be my priority. And so when I think about what I love about comics and comics are really the definitive reading experience of my childhood. I can't remember the first novel that I read. Maybe it was the Hobbit. Maybe it was house the clock in its walls. Maybe it was wrinkle in time or one of the Ramona Quimby books. I don't even know, but I can remember the first comic I read. I can remember all the comics I read because I read them over and over and over and over again until they fell apart in my hands. And my mom used to take me to the mercantile. That's how small the town was. We didn't have a grocery store. We had a mercantile. And there used to be a spinner rack in every convenience store and grocery store across America. I miss those spinner racks. God, me too. I bought some of my most memorable works off that stuff. Yeah. And, and I would be deposited below the spinner rack and told to be good. And my mom would shop, and I would just read the comics, pull them off the spinner rack. I'm talking about Warlord and Man-Thing and Spider-Man and the X-Men and Batman and whatever else. And if I was good, I got to go home with the comic. Um, and one of the things I always loved about comics is that there's a shared universe at play, right? What happens in Batman carries over to Wonder Woman, carries over to Superman. But they are not necessarily reliant on each other. You know, you can just dip in and out. They're... And, and and I came to realize later, like, that's what Faulkner's doing, and that's what Louise Erdrich's doing, mm, right? They're building course. their own shared universe. They've yeah. got this patch of land, these, these geographies that they keep writing about, and they've got these families that they keep writing about, different generations of families. And they appear throughout all these different books and rub up against each other. And I sort of am taking an amalgamation of what I've learned from comic books and what I've learned from, from literature and presenting it in these novels. Now, you know, you talked about your childhood experience with comics. And one of the reasons when I was a kid, I the first, I, can, I absolutely know I still had the first book I ever read, which was Winnie the Pooh. I used to drag it around, tell my grandmother to read it to me. So finally she just got tired of that and said, this is, you know, taught me to read. And when I first discovered comic books my dad said no cannot read those they're just full of fantasy and stuff that is not real so you're not going to read those you have to live in the real world and so I mean I, I just I never was allowed to bring them home I didn't I, the only one I ever remember reading was a classics illustration Classics Illustrated edition of The War of the Worlds. I totally loved it, and that took me farther down the science fiction uh, path pretty early and pretty quick. But now when I look around and I see what has happened to our society, especially with in terms of the disinformation and the, the things that people are willing to believe that are completely unbelievable... You know, I start to think, and I hate to say this, uh, that science fiction has a lot to answer for. That without science fiction, I don't know how successful something like Q would be. 
I mean, and any of these conspiracy theories, they they read like to to science fiction readers. They read like science fiction. So, you know, and I think um, so. I like you to talk about um, using the unreal to bring in the real. I mean, that's what we've talked about this a bit already. But so talk about the you know, the conflict between comics. And also, I will say that 2015, Marvel gave us Captain America, Civil War. In 2016, it's just America, Civil War. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, I I worry. Yeah, do you, do yeah. you? There's a excellent comic out right now called Department of Truth, written by James Tinian IV, or Tinian, I can't remember how to pronounce his name. Uh, sorry, James, if you're listening. Uh, and in it, he writes about conspiracy theorists. The really interesting thing that he does, though, is as he addresses everything from the moon landing to JFK's assassination, is that he is this, this group and there are some supernatural elements at work. And they are trying to, to build up disinformation in such a way that it becomes real. So in other words, if enough people believe in something, this group discovers it actually happens. In other words, the universe bends around the belief so that as they get these different people together and... and so mistrust and such, you can watch a video, and this is on the page of the comic, of Stanley Kubrick directing the moon landing. <laughs> you or know, at one point, they get in this jet, and, and they fly, and they fly, and they fly towards the horizon, and they land at the edge of the world. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's flat, right? And then some you know, government agent comes out and like kills everybody there with an assault, you know, with an Uzi and in order to, you know, sort of reforge the world. And that's where you come to understand is that there's a secret, there's a shadow agency that's trying to stop all of these splinter groups from changing the shape of history and changing the shape of the world by like, hit squad. This is reminiscent of another story that I never forgot by Borges, uh, Talon Akbar Tertius Orbitus where uh, an encyclopedia is discovered that has a completely different history of the human race. It's much more enjoyable and likable, and everybody just tosses reality and goes to the new encyclopedia. And, and I think it is true. We do kind of create our reality around ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, um, and in part this is because of power, and in part this is because of money, you know, you get clicks, you get views, you get votes, you get donations. If you create uh, rabid loyalty or fear based out of rabid loyalty, um, you know, any sort of radicalization, violent radicalization of information and policy is working against a few things. One, that we are uh, a country and a people that should be 
invested in the betterment of the future and not concentrating on division, right? Mm. All of this together. We all want the best there is for our families. And if we could only concentrate on that, the world would be a lot better place instead of focusing on how much we hate that other person, you know, and treating, treating politics like a team sport. And to that end, the family nature of, say, these books does that, focuses on the fact that even though you've got these wild things happening with omni-metal growing out of the ground or mushrooms, in, in your novels, the family is what's important and holds us and itself together. Yeah. And, you know, I'm reminded of um, something that happened years ago, back in the 80s. There was a peace summit in the United Kingdom. And Reagan famously said to Gorbachev that the two superpowers, the U.S. and Russia, could, or the Soviet Union, could finally be friends if only Earth was threatened by an alien invasion. Mm. <laughs> because that would upend whatever grievances uh, nations struggle with uh, as they're united against a common enemy. Now, that takes a page from an old Outer Limits episode <laughs> starring Robert Culp, where at the beginning, all these scientists are saying, in order, you know, it's T minus zero for the doomsday, and in order for us to unite Earth, we're going to have to have an alien invasion, and one of us is going to have to become this, and they hold up, the, you know, an alien, uh, uh, Outer Limits era alien. And Robert Culp becomes that alien. And then when he's killed at the very end, he makes a sign that his wife watching understands and understands where her husband is gone. Yeah. Yeah. And you hope that you hope that that would have been the case with COVID. Like here's essentially an alien invasion, right? Exactly. But hope that we would all be united in, in, you know, protecting ourselves against it and 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 getting past this very difficult period but instead it's just unfortunately become weaponized in one more thing that's created division um and and you know i guess you could say that my novel is a more hopeful optimistic even though there's dark things that happen in it uh, a more hopeful optimistic take on that in that my characters are instead brought together uh they begin divided and they're brought together by this this larger threat well, now that's an interesting uh, thought. So, um, as you 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 also you work in comics, you work in in novels, but also uh, there's a movie coming out. So tell us a little bit about Summering. Yeah, yeah, I've been, you know, I've been playing around a, quite a bit with film and TV lately, and I've got a few things in the hopper. I'm actually adapting. Uh, the Comet Cycle for TV right now. I'm not allowed to say who I'm doing it for. Um, and we'll I, see if it actually happens. I would hope the heck it does. I, I was, you know, when you're reading these books, you, just, you think, oh my God, this would be so great as a blank series. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I mean, they, nope. just, uh, they sound fantastic. But I'm, I'm in the pilot right now, and uh, and I'm doing another, another thing for uh, Paramount as well, and and I'm not allowed to say what that is either. But but this movie, Summering, is the first thing that I'm going to see on the screen of mine. Um, 
you know, the large majority of options that you hear about, like, oh, this book got optioned or that book got optioned or it's being developed. Most of that stuff doesn't end up panning out in the end. Mm. Uh, in this case, we very gratefully went the distance. So I know James Ponsolt from the Suwannee Writers Conference. We were roommates there in 2003 when our greatest dream was to publish a short story in a mid-tier literary journal. Um, and, and we've grown up as writers, as friends since then. Uh, and he's gone on to make a bunch of great movies, including The End of the Tour. That's that David Foster Wallace movie with Jesse Eisenberg and Jason mm. Segel, if you've seen it, and, and The Spectacular Now, and, and he's directed a lot of TV. And anyways, we've been, we have multiple projects actually in development right now, but this is the one that happened first. And Summering uh, will premiere at the Sundance Film Festival in January. Uh, I have my plane tickets, Omicron willing, um, and and uh, I really hope to be there. That would be such a, very selfishly, that would be such a pisser if it got canceled. Um, and it's about, well, I could say it's dedicated to my daughter. <clears throat> um, I was so excited to read her the books and show her the movies that had influenced me as a kid. And... I read her The Hobbit, and she was like, that was pretty good, but uh, where are all the girls? <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Time. And it's even worse than you would think. There is only one female pronoun in the entire novel. Really? Yeah. One she. That's it. Uh, then we watched The Goonies. Then we watched Stand By Me. Mm. And, you know, her response was the same. Um, and, and these stories are, are pitched as being universal stories. So it's not that I just wanted to write a story for her. I wanted to write a story that starred versions of her and her friends, but also was meant to be a universal story, not just a story for girls, which is how like sisterhood of the traveling pants or something is referred to. Unfortunately, like mm -hmm. I wanted to just write something that felt, um, you know, like it belonged to everyone. Anyways, there's a lot of revisionary impulse behind it. Like, um, there are references, visual references to Psycho, to Halloween, to, you know, all of these movies that essentially make women the victim, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of references to crime shows. Every crime show opens up with a dead woman. And that dead woman becomes a vehicle for a man learning more about himself and going on a journey, right? So this movie takes uh, the opposite track in that it deals with these girls and they're on the precipice of middle school. They're going from, it's the last weekend of summer before sixth grade. And, you know, they're, they know that they're going to end up splintering after that, this, this close-knit circle of friends uh you know because one girl is going off to catholic school um you know they've been warned that they'll be in different on different teams different classes assigned that their, their parents are telling her you know the friends you have in elementary school aren't going to be the friends you have in middle school and, and so on and so forth and, and so this last weekend is very sacred to them and and they end up discovering a dead body happening upon a dead body and it's the body of a man and so you know, they go essentially on this journey to 
figure out who this guy was um, in order to, in keeping it from their parents because they don't want their last weekend to be shot. Um, because they know if the cops get involved and their parents get involved, it's like, it's all off in terms of, you know, their sleepovers and these kids are all kind of sociopaths, right? And, and like, we can just wait to tell our parents until Sunday about this. Like, uh, and, and so this sort of adventure happens over the course of the weekend where they discover some harsh truths about, about adulthood and about themselves in the process. But it's kind of like this very kaleidoscopic, rainbow-powered, gothic uh, tone poem with really dark shadows around the edges of it. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited. That sounds like fun. Talk about how you divide up your time and your mind to undertake these projects. It's not like you can just sit down for half a day and finish one and then pop on to the next. You're jumping from groove to groove to groove. Flow really matters. Finding that groove in a story so that you get pulled by it absorbed by it that's where the good stuff comes from when you're in the zone and and somehow you step away from the keyboard there's 10 fresh pages in front of you and you hardly know where they came from it's hard to achieve that in a very distracted time of news alerts and social media and such and and it's harder to achieve that when you're juggling different projects uh sometimes because of deadlines you know the comics take center stage because I have to keep this artist fed. <laughs> I have to get this book on the stands by this date. Uh, you know, there's just no negotiation on that stuff or you get fired. Uh, but sometimes, man, that novel's just calling my name and I really just want to be there. Um, you know, yesterday I had one of those days where I've been in comics mode, comics mode, comics mode, comics mode. And then finally I was like, okay, cleared my desk. I'm going to be in the novel for a week. And yesterday I was just like, 12 pages came out of me and they were just, I think, pent up. But it's been a long time since I had a day like that, of, you know, 12, 10 pages of prose. Um, and, and so I try to use time management. I try to use, uh, you know, I try to use concentrated chunks of time uh, to, to work on different projects. So I, I'll say like, okay, I'm going to do the novel in the morning. And then I'm going to walk the dog and I'm going to eat my lunch. And the whole time I'm doing that, I'm going to be thinking about what my next project is and sort of gear shift. So that when I sit down again at one o'clock, I'm working instead on comics or an article or whatever. Um, and maybe at night, later that night, after I get the kids to bed and everything, maybe then I'm just editing what I did before. So it's a, it's a lot of like capsule work. It's like for this chunk of time, I'm doing this. For that chunk of time, I'm doing that. Now, we know that you have this Sky Vault uh, coming up as your next novel. Um, are you working on anything outside of the Comet, comet cycle? Uh, for novels, no. But for novellas, yes. I'm working with this company called Neotext, and it's owned by a guy named John Schoenfelder, who is a producer at Addictive Pictures, their film production company. And, and he recognizes that there's not as many opportunities to publish short fiction or novella length fiction as there used to be right examples being like esquire used to have a short story every month mm -hmm. atlantic monthly and so on saturday evening post wherever and and so he he wants to pay well and also provide art like 
put art into the stories um, and, and, and then try to develop them as films. So it sort of falls into all of my like pleasure points at once where it's like, okay, I'm going to write this novella, which I love that length. And I'm going to, uh, you know, have an artist paired with me and then I'm going to take it out and try to adapt as a screenplay. Great. Um, so I'm doing a few novellas for them. I have one that's already come out called where world, um, or I should say the where world. We had a copyright infringement issue, the where world. <laughs> uh, and you can find that online right now. Um, so I'm working on those. I'm working on, I'm doing a bunch of crime stories for, for Neotext. Uh, and then, you know, I've, I've got all these film and, and TV things and comics that's dominating the rest of my time. So as soon as I finish Skybolt, I'm going to pitch the next arc of the Comet Cycle and we'll see what happens. I've been speaking with Benjamin Percy. His forthcoming novel is The Unfamiliar Garden. Thank you for joining me, Ben. Hey, thank you. It's been a pleasure chatting. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.